from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am Not 100%, but I am My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, of course. Pixie, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Aaron, Katoras, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Janice, Katarina, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, two Emmas, another Janice, Emily, Gabrielle, Galen, Cassandra, Bree, David, John, and Judy. Thank you so, so much. You guys are truly appreciated. And for the sudden influx of new listeners, welcome to the Murder Family. This week's podcast is going to be another revisit, this one on Gary Ridgway. Gary Leon Ridgway was born on February 18, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah. And as we always do, let's get into some history for that time. The communist leader Mao Zedong established the People's Republic of China. The former nationalist government was forced out and they fled and then took over the island of Taiwan. Since World War II had ended a few years prior, the world's nations were getting together to discuss the actual rules of war, such as the treatment of prisoners and civilians and so on. In 1949, the Fourth Geneva Convention was agreed on in August, which was mostly reacting to the horrible and tragic treatment of people during the war. This convention specifically detailed rules for treating, quote, protected persons in times of armed conflict. Murder was outlawed, so was torture, degradation, humiliation, taking hostages, as well as sentencing or executing persons without a proper court trial. Indonesia, who had been formerly the Dutch East Indies colony, was finally given their independence from the Netherlands after the end of World War II. It would become known as the Republic of Indonesia. Also in 1949, NATO, or North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was established It's an agreed-upon pact regarding the defense and protection of Europe from the Soviet Union. This was in response to the Soviet Union aggressively trying to gain control of a lot of Eastern Europe. It also meant that there would be U.S. influence in that region, which gave many countries confidence in the U.S. at the beginning of the Cold War. The Soviet Union tested its first atomic bomb, The Federal Republic of Germany was founded, and refugees from Palestine were granted $16 million by President Harry S. Truman. George Orwell's book, 1984, was published. 
It's a book about the future of a totalitarian state that wants complete control over the people's thoughts and also to rewrite history. The book is considered a classic, many people thinking it's happening today, and it was very successful, and terms used in the book such as Big Brother and Thought Police are still part of everyday vocabulary. The first Volkswagen Beetle was sold in the U.S., and the first car with a Porsche badge is known as the International Automobile Show in Geneva. The infamous Polaroid camera was invented and sold in 1949, much to the happiness of many of our serial killers. Also this year, Jeff Bridges, Lionel Richie, Bruce Springsteen, John Belushi, Andy Kaufman, Jessica Lange, oh, Meryl Streep, Sigourney Weaver, and Vera Wang were all born this same year. So Utah is nestled nicely between Colorado and Nevada with Arizona just to its south. It became a state in 1896. It is reported that 62% of the population are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or Mormons if you will. This makes Utah a state where the majority of their population only belong to one religion. In fact, the Mormon Mecca, if you will, is in Salt Lake City. In 1949, Utah experienced its worst winter ever on record with a three-day blizzard. It broke windows and caved in people's roofs. The snowdrifts alone were as tall as 10 feet that accumulated in driveways and along roads. The temperature dropped well below zero degrees Fahrenheit. It was so cold, in fact, that the snow froze and the plows couldn't even move them. People were stranded, families were trapped in their homes and had to be rescued. A lot of the livestock couldn't graze and being exposed to those temperatures led many to freeze to death. The military actually dropped hay down from military planes to feed the starving animals. So. This was the overall global atmosphere that Gary was born into. His parents were Thomas Ridgway and Mary Steinman. So Thomas Ridgway was born in April of 1923 in Kentucky, though his family moved to New Mexico when he was very young and that's where he grew up. To say they were poor just doesn't quite encompass it. Thomas was actually taken away from his parents by an uncle because they were struggling so badly during the Great Depression. According to the book, quote, Defending Gary, Unraveling the Mind of the Green River Killer, his unmarried uncle then took him to Kansas, and so Thomas had no real mother figure and was awkward toward girls. Mary Rita Steinman was born in January 1928 in Valley City, North Dakota, though her family moved to Bremerton, across the Sound from Seattle. By all accounts, she was an intelligent young girl who would go on to be a cheerleader. She was very social and was reportedly one of the more popular girls in school. She was one of five children from her parents, and they were described as very, very conservative Roman Catholic with strong and negative views regarding women and sex. 
There is a story that Mary's father had gotten angry at the fact that she had painted her fingernails, so he hit the tips of her fingers with a hammer. Now, she and Tom met in early 1947, and Mary became pregnant, and they got married very soon after. Mary's family thought Thomas was, quote, rough-hewn, earthy, sly, if not a bit crude, end quote. He was not very politically correct and was a bit sexist, as his upbringing by his bachelor uncle had taught him. It turned out that Thomas had actually been married before Mary and had a son with the previous wife and had a lot of very negative things to say about sex workers, which we'll get into later. So, once Thomas and Mary began having their three sons, Gary being the middle child, they lived in Utah and Thomas worked as a truck driver, which usually means they are not home much and Mary was left trying to bring three boys up basically alone. We really wouldn't say they were poor, but things were tight. Once their youngest son came down with a very concerning fever, but Mary had no money to take him to the doctor. So she literally had to put the small child in a snowbank to cool his body down as quickly as she could. But it is known that the boy did suffer some level of brain damage. Now, Gary's relatives, once the family moved to Washington State, described Mary as domineering and said that Gary had been witness to the violent arguments his parents would get into. One story goes that their fighting got so heated, Mary broke a dinner plate over Thomas's head. Gary's childhood neighbors said that Mary yelled at Thomas and her sons fairly frequently. There were others that said Thomas beat his sons, but those same neighbors stated they never saw anything like that, so that's kind of up in the air. The Ridgeway's former neighbors actually said that Mary was a very talented gardener and their yard was a work of art. She was a focused, driven, conservative woman who was more often seen wearing jeans than anything else. So Gary was described as a very nice child who always went out of his way to say hello. Former classmates say he was congenial and well-liked by everyone in his class. In school, though, he struggled. He was dyslexic and his IQ was tested to be at 82, which is considered, quote, lower than average intelligence. He failed one grade and had to repeat it. He also unfortunately wet the bed into his early teens, which led to his mother belittling him often. In fact, his relationship with his mother was rather complicated because he was both angry with her and then also later felt some level of sexual attraction to her. So he grew to both hate and love his mother. He stated in a prison interview that he couldn't take his frustrations out on his mother, of course, so he would go outside and break things, and then he began to torture and kill animals, all ways of coping with his anger. Gary's father didn't discipline the children as much or as frequently as his mother did, but when Thomas got involved, well, he would beat his sons with a belt or with a switch. 
Gary and his brothers were also humiliated by the fact that their father enjoyed going to junkyards and digging through the junk to find treasures that he could clean up, turn around, and resell. Thomas also seemed to show some favoritism over one of the sons, and that son, Greg, did his best to shield his brothers from the brunt of it. Gary and Ed were, quote, followers, whereas Greg was a natural leader. One story goes that Gary's father even made Gary sit in ice-cold water in the bathtub for wetting the bed. But no one remembers Gary crying or feeling sorry for himself. It's almost like he just accepted it as a natural part of his life. Gary just knew. It was just part of the fabric of his being that he would never be able to be what his father wanted. So in 1964, 16-year-old Gary walked up to a six-year-old little boy playing, wearing a cowboy hat, and he stabbed him in the stomach. The boy, realizing what just happened, looked up at Gary and said, quote, Why did you kill me? The boy saw that his own blood was running out of the wound, down his leg, and into his little cowboy boots. That same boy would later testify that Gary laughed, wiped the blood off the blade onto the boy's shirt, and then replied, quote, I always wanted to know what it felt like to kill somebody, end quote. Then Gary walked away, his head held high and laughing. Thankfully, the boy was taken to the hospital where he had to undergo surgery to repair his liver, but he survived. Now, by this point, Gary's father was driving a bus for the city and constantly complained of the sex workers he saw around the city. He protested so much that many believe he might have been actually visiting them. Now, Mary herself began working as a saleswoman at a local JCPenney's department store. So then Gary began to see a girl, Claudia Craig, in later high school. He took on a job after school and on weekends in a Kenworth factory where they made tractors for semis. Now, Claudia later said that she noticed pretty quickly that Gary worked hard at pleasing his parents and especially his mother, but to no avail. She also said that Mary yelled at Thomas near constantly, that she seemed a very unhappy woman. Gary and Claudia would sometimes go to a youth nightclub that was put together by the local Methodist church. Other girls flirted with Gary, but he didn't seem to pay attention. He and Claudia would begin to have sex either outdoors or in Gary's car very early in their relationship. Finally, in June of 1969, Gary Ridgway graduated high school. He was 20 years old. He very quickly married Claudia, moved to San Diego, and immediately enlisted in the Navy. And so, that was Gary's childhood, and there is a lot of things to touch on, so let's get started. It doesn't take a lot of analysis to see that Gary was raised by two people who were dysfunctional. His father was raised by a sexist, never married, and cynical uncle who basically taught him to be that very way. Mary was in a household where girls who wore fingernail polish got the ends of their fingers broken. 
Some sources say that Mary presented herself conservatively, while others say that she wore jeans a little too tight and wore her makeup a little too intense at times. However their courtship was, the marriage was not pleasant, to say the least. Their children were raised in an environment where they fought constantly, and Mary screamed at her husband, throwing things and breaking a plate over his head. Mary's rule over the house was absolute. So with kids whose parents fight intensely and so very often are negatively affected. According to VeryWellFamily.com, research suggests that intense parental fighting negatively impacts a child's emotional security. Kids whose parents bitterly fight makes the children stress about possible divorce and that chronic stress affects their health and interrupts their emotional development. The stressed out parent might either not spend enough time with the kids or the time spent isn't a positive experience. Unhappy parents tend to not show as much physical and psychological love that is critical for healthy child development. And that's just the short-term effects. The long-term? Well. In 2012, the journal Child Development published a study that looked at the effect of parental fighting on children from early childhood through about 12 years old. They chose 235 middle-class families from the Midwest and Northeast United States with a very average yearly income. The outcome of this study is what you would imagine. The children with parents who fought frequently and intensely had a much higher rate of depression, anxiety, and behavioral issues by the time they reached seventh grade. And those issues were just the tip of the iceberg. The stress associated with living in this environment impaired the child's cognitive performance. They had a much harder time regulating their emotions and attention. The ability to resolve problems and recognize patterns were significantly compromised. Okay, They tended to treat others with the same hostility they constantly witnessed at home. They also showed some impairment with regards to maintaining healthy relationships. The behavioral problems displayed as increased aggression, delinquency, and conduct problems. There was also an increase in substance abuse, eating disorders, sleep disturbance, getting into physical fights, and just a generalized negative outlook on life along with academic struggles. So for Gary, these outcomes don't completely fit. I mean, yes, he did struggle in school and had to be held back, so that much could be true for him. But as far as behavioral issues or delinquency and conduct problems in his childhood, there really aren't any reports of that other than when he was 16, which we will get into. Now, how that fighting affects the emotional security of a child does make sense in this case. So take the parents' constant fighting and add in overly critical and borderline abusive parents and you begin to see some things. Children who are borderline, if not completely physically and mentally abused, tend to have delayed or inappropriate emotional development, low self-confidence, which Gary definitely displayed. 
and they desperately seek approval from the parent or parents, and they begin to show a decrease in school performance. Now, let's sprinkle in a pinch of parents who always made him feel like he was never going to be good enough, and you have a child that will most likely feel worthless or even subhuman. One specific instance is comparing one child to another, which was a very real thing for Gary. His older brother was thought of as far superior to him and his little brother. His parents did this and knowingly, or hopefully unknowingly, made him feel bad about himself. The parents preached about how much better his sibling was to try to modify Gary's behavior. This system of discipline does nothing but make the child feel insecure, cautious, ultimately flawed, distrustful, and inferior. Now the effects of all of that generally has two outcomes people-pleasers, and narcissists. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And we all know that narcissists see others only as mere objects to use, and that brings us to the stabbing when he was 16. When he was asked later why he stabbed that six-year-old boy, he said quite flatly, quote, just to see how stabbing worked, end quote. Children who murder or attempt to murder, according to Psychology Today, often have been abused, neglected, or have experienced a tense and violent home life. Also, children that display attachment disorders, along with a history of some level of abuse or otherwise extremely disruptive attitudes and behaviors acted out towards the child, may develop aggressive behaviors. They have problems controlling their emotions, which then leads to impulsive, violent outbursts. And all of that makes sense. It really should be common knowledge. But when it comes to Gary, I am leaning more toward the fact that the pathology was already there. Now, let me explain. Gary's classmates described him as very nice and went out of his way to say hello. This shows that he might have been somewhat charming as a child, and when he was disciplined, he simply just gave in to it, understood that it was what it was, whereas normal kids dread any form of discipline. So the six signs to watch out for to see if a child might have future psychopathic traits, it's usually a conduct disorder before 18, are superficially charming. They feel no guilt or remorse are fascinated about certain things, have a short temper, punishment insensitive, which is just not learning from punishment or not reacting to the punishment. They display a lack of empathy, meaning they just aren't able to put themselves in someone else's shoes. They just don't comprehend the feelings of others. So psychopaths will generally come across as seemingly harmless people who often do not stand out in a crowd. They keep their true selves very carefully hidden, and that makes them so much more difficult to identify. And this describes young Gary nearly perfectly. 
And lastly, Gary has admitted that he hated his mother, but was also sexually attracted to her. According to simplypsychology.org, this is known as Oedipus syndrome or complex. It is when a boy develops unconscious sexual desires for his mother and there is some jealousy aimed at the father. In turn, they will become fearful of their father and to cope with this anxiety, they then begin to identify with their father. The son adopts and internalizes the attitudes, characteristics, and values that his father holds. This is a big clue. Because you see, Gary's father had a low opinion of women, and since he was a city bus driver as Gary started to come to an age, he would hear his father talk horrible about the sex workers of Seattle. Interesting. Hmm. And so, let's get back into it. In 1969, 20-year-old Gary joined the Navy. He served on a supply ship in Vietnam. Four months after being deployed, the military doctors diagnosed him with gonorrhea. When he finally returned from the Navy, he found out that his young wife had also been sleeping around. She was living with a female and male roommate. So in 1971, Gary moved back to Seattle and Claudia followed him. He got his job back at the Kenworth factory and the couple did the best they could to salvage their marriage. But considering they were living with Gary's parents didn't really help matters any. They did manage to get an apartment near the SeaTac airport, but Claudia left again and Gary filed for divorce. To say Gary was pissed is an understatement. He would tell people that she had moved down there and in with several men, but had all but turned into a sex worker, but that he still loved her. But his contention didn't last long. He met Marsha Winslow a year later and they began dating. They then moved in together and married a year later. Their son Matthew was born in 1975. Now, Gary hadn't lost his love of having sex in remote and odd places, and he took Marcia out for in-car trysts, some of them being right by the Green River. She also later stated he had picked up his father's interest in going through trash and dump sites, looking for things that he might be able to clean up and sell later. His hobby really was to sell his findings at garage sales or swap meets a hobby that he did continue until his arrest. And Gary really liked his job at Kenworth, where he was a truck painter and quickly rose up in seniority and in pay. He was diligent and worked hard and past co-workers said he really had a natural talent for it. He always brought his own lunch and perused a small and local magazine, kind of like Craigslist, but on paper and he'd make a note of any bargains he saw. He was also observed reading his Bible regularly. He was described as friendly and knew everyone. He liked to give everyone a quick hello and apparently kept a little spray bottle of water on him to keep his hair and mustache in check. So Marsha and Gary joined some churches and they would go door to door to attempt to do Bible study with people in their home. But most of the time the door would slam in Gary's face, which would make him angry. 
Marsha also said that Gary would openly cry during sermons, during church, that he began to get fanatical about religion. He would watch TV with his Bible in his lap. Then, one evening, after getting back home from a party where they had been drinking, Marcia stepped out of their van and stumbled. At first, she thought someone else had grabbed her, but to her realization, it was her husband, only he was choking her, squeezing tighter and tighter. He, of course, stopped and played it off that he hadn't been the one choking her, but she knew. But in 1978, the obsession with going to church had begun to subside and Marcia noticed that Gary was getting home from work later and later in the evenings. And when he would get back home, he would be dirty and sometimes wet. So finally, not long after, Marcia filed for divorce. She later had to get a restraining order with the local police because Gary was calling her on the phone and harassing her about the divorce. And when the divorce was final, Gary was made to pay $275 a month in child support, which was a considerable amount for that time. Then in early 1981, Gary joined a group called, quote, Parents Without Partners and found himself dating some of the girls within this group. The first one corroborated Marcia's story of how Gary loved to go out in the middle of nowhere, in the brush or near the river, to have sex. She even agreed to let him tie her up, but she began to see the relationship was only sexual and she asked him to, quote, back off. She later stated that he had no close friends of his own. Finally, she got tired of him and asked him to leave her home that she had allowed him to move into. But you see, by this point, he was already seeing another woman. He bought a house on Military Road in SeaTac, which he went on to own for seven years. It was a neighborhood that kept to itself. But the neighbors noticed he kept his house shut tight, and sometimes he didn't even keep up with his yard. His new girlfriend noted that Gary still had his mother help him sort out his bank account and would call her very often for advice on things that most people would never need advice for. She said he was definitely dependent on his mother. This same girlfriend said he also demanded to have sex a minimum of three times a day. Then one evening, while his girlfriend was at the group, Gary showed up late and was visibly shaken. She asked him what was wrong, and he said he had nearly killed a sex worker. Also around this point, Gary started seeing yet another girl, so it was a good timing for girlfriend number two to dump him. In early 1982, the local police saw Gary Ridgway parked near a little league baseball field with an 18-year-old sex worker named Kelly McGinnis. Gary was also reportedly having money issues and decided to rent his house out to a couple while he lived in the garage, but the tenants reported he was rarely ever home and especially not on weekends. He would stay with his newest girlfriend on the weekends, but he had other things going on during the week. And one of those goings-on, if you will, got him arrested for soliciting an undercover cop for sex. 
Now, around this time, girls began to disappear, the majority to be later found near the banks of the Green River, south of Seattle. Some were found around the airport or near ravines and freeways. Most were known sex workers. Some were drug addicted, others just runaways, and nearly all were last seen near the SeaTac Strip near the airport, where the seedier of Seattle's population went to hang out in the bars and the dance clubs. During this time, he was killing them one by one. He would pick them up along the strip, offer them money for a date then drive to a secluded place where they would have sex, then he would strangle them, then have sex with their body again and leave the body in the secluded area where he would again visit the corpse and have intercourse with it. He said later that he didn't particularly want to have sex with the remains of his victims, but it was nearly the only way he could control his sexual urges and less women would have to die. He later testified that he would use the bodies again and again until the level of decomposition was too much for him to take. Now, in a sick twist of fate, once word began spreading that women were being found murdered, women became more hesitant to get in the car with strange men. So Gary would show them a picture of his young son, relaxing them, and they would get in just to be murdered. On one occasion, he actually brought his own son with him when he picked up a sex worker. He killed the woman outside of the car so that his son wouldn't see. To me, like you had a series of of bruises that you had kind of in your hip pocket. One of them was, as as I, they would, a woman would get in the car, driving down the road, and she, first she wants to see my ID. So I whipped out my ID, and with my ID would be my, I'd put my finger over my driver's license to hide my name. But on the opposite side was um, a picture of my son. And then to see my son, and they would know I was a fucking normal person. And uh, in the vehicle, I had some, uh, always had some, not always, but had some of my son's stuff in there, you know, that he left in there, or some Star Wars or something like that. And also there was, there was sort of like a family setting, you know, kids' toys, eight-year-old toys on the, on the dash. The only thing that would be better than that would be to have your son in the car with you. That that would be a, a, a incredible ruse. Uh, that happened once. What happened? Weekend I picked up uh, a woman on back, back highway and Matthew was next to me in the seat and she hopped in and and I took her over to uh, in the south south airport area and took her uh, into an area and uh, my son was there and I, I killed her. The body count rose so quickly, and the Green River Task Force was put together to investigate the murders. As they began to comb the area for possible suspects, they came across Gary's name as someone who dealt with sex workers, and they brought him in for questioning. He was able to pass the polygraph test and was passed on. 
1983, a woman's body was discovered in a strangely posed way. She had strangely placed fish around her, as well as freshly ground beef in one of her hands. And by this point, he was murdering a woman sometimes as often as every other day, or he might let as much as a month go by. In 1984, the task force, becoming frustrated at the lack of leads or breaks in the case, was contacted by none other than Ted Bundy, who was in prison in Florida, and they happily took his advice. Ted offered his opinion on the psychology of the killer, as well as his motivations and behavior. He told them that the killer was most likely revisiting the dump sites to have continued intercourse with the bodies. He told them that if they found a fresh body, they should, quote, stake it out and wait for the killer to return, end quote. And Ted was right. They also used the fresh corpses to get samples and evidence for an arrest warrant should they be able to pinpoint who the murderer was. And Gary was actually interviewed more than once, but they could just never pinpoint enough to make an arrest but they did take hair and saliva samples from his home during a search. In 1988, he married his girlfriend, Judith Lynch, and for a time, Gary was able to control himself. He describes the years he was married and settled with Judith as his happiest. He carved letters into his locker, NKDK, no kill, don't kill, to remind himself to keep his urges at bay. His personality seemed to blossom, and he went out of his way to talk to his neighbors and began to show talent for gardening, just like his mother. Things got so quiet that in 1990, the Green River Task Force disbanded. Gary was now 41 years old and had managed to keep himself out of trouble, or at least slowed considerably, and continued to be undetectable. Only a few women were murdered over the course of over 20 years. In 2001, the Green River Task Force was reinstated and began work immediately. Then on a payday Friday in November of 2001, 52-year-old Gary completed his shift, was off work at 3 p.m., got into his 1992 Ford Ranger pickup truck, and headed toward the SeaTac strip he had become so familiar with. He had with him $30, some latex gloves. Near a cheap motel, he spotted his prey, what appeared to be a, quote, working girl. It was now 3.55 p.m. when he attempted to pick up the girl who just happened to be a cop working undercover. He pulled up, got out of his truck, and said, Are you dating? He was then arrested on loitering for prostitution charges and pled guilty. He was then released but quickly arrested again at his job at Kenworth Truck Factory on suspicion of killing four women, and then DNA proved he was the murderer. He later confessed to killing 71 or so women over the course of more than 20 years. He said he had killed so many that he had simply lost count. He also said that it felt like murdering sex workers was his actual career. 
He said he toyed with the idea of murdering his wives, his mother, and even his own son, who was now married and living around San Diego. What did you want to do to your mom here? Uh, I wanted her to um, stop um, being angry at me for not knowing how to... uh, she wasn't stopping. No, she wasn't stopping. Was she? No. She kept picking on you. She belittling you. Mm-hmm. Embarrassing you. I think I just wanted her to stop and um, let, me, let me alone. Just angry at uh, her for uh, pushing and pushing and pushing on me to, to remember, and I just couldn't remember. Matthew remembers his father as a nice man who was never mean to him, who showed up to his school and sports functions. And while it has always been said that Gary's IQ was below average, he was impressively meticulous in his murders. If he thought the tire tread might have left marks on the ground where he left a body, he'd simply go out and buy all new tires. He was never a smoker, but he would dump used cigarette butts around the bodies. If a victim had torn his clothing or scratched him, he would clip their fingernails before he left. One victim in particular had scratched his arms so badly that he literally wiped battery acid over the scratches. In the end, he was sentenced to a whopping 480 years to life imprisonment. His wife, Judith, was granted a divorce a year later, and Gary's still alive today. Now, in my opinion, I think Gary was already born with the ingredients to be a serial killer. He displayed many of the early signs of psychopathy from a pretty young age, but I think the environment he was raised in began to melt those ingredients together. Gary was forever torn between his deeply religious beliefs and his insatiable lust for sex and murder. When you watch him being interviewed, he stumbles and rambles on like a child who doesn't quite understand the question. He starts crying at times where it wouldn't normally be so warranted. Is it an act? Is he just trying to mirror the emotions of others around him that he knows he doesn't have inside? I think in Gary's case, it is both nature and nurture. But tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below if you're watching, or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can email me. All of my contact information is below. Consider becoming a patron. And as always, thank you so much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I truly appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day.